Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited to provide our deep dive that I promised for my subscribers all about sex. And as you know, by listening to this week's episode with Dr. Alexandra Solomon, and if you haven't already listened to that, listen to that first. We're going to be just doing a deep dive together all about sex. And It's just going to be a sit-down chat with us, as you know already by being a subscriber. These episodes are more laid back. They're not as polished. But why I like that is because it's just like us sitting down and chatting. And I have put together so much killer research for this episode. I actually put this episode together and all the research for it a couple of months ago, but I'm so happy that I saved it for my subscribers because you all are investing in me and what I do. And this was really, really hard to put together. So the first thing that I want to open up with for this episode is a little clip from YouTube that I'm going to play for you. And it's by one of my favorite content creators on YouTube of all time. And She goes by ContraPoints on YouTube. Uh, Her name is Natalie. She's actually a trans woman, and she is so incredibly intelligent, and her videos are some of the most incredible pieces of content I've come across on the YouTube platform. So if you want to look her up, that's C-O-N-T-R-A-P-O-I-N-T-S, ContraPoints. She only releases one video like every eight months because each video is like an hour and a half long. She dresses up in these beautiful, elaborate costumes. And when I tell you this bitch is one of the smartest people you will come across, you will feel like you took 12 college courses, but also laughed and just fell in love with her. So when I say I recommend her content, I can't reiterate that enough. So the video that I'm going to be playing you a snippet of of Natalie's is called Envy. So if you want to listen to the full one, you just need to search up ContraPoints and find her video called Envy. And I found an article that kind of gives a lowdown of what her video is about. And this article says her new video covers Envy, resentment-based politics, and how that specifically interferes with online cultures. There's something she discussed a little in a Guardian interview she had in June. Quote, the whole internet is about jealousy, she continued. It creates such animosity between people because it's all about people envying each other. It's so unhealthy in every possible way. I'm working on a video about this, envy, which is an interesting topic because of social media, which is all about promoting envy and making people unhappy with what they are and what they have. She said that she'd been reading up on Buddhism in preparation. In her video Envy, she particularly hones in on thinkers like Friedrich Nietzsche, Andrew Dworkin, and Aristotle, drawing very heavily on her philosophy knowledge. So 
the reason why I'm playing this for you and the particular snippet that I've selected is all about sluts. And I love how she just talks about the concept of sluts. I know that for my female listeners, anyone who's ever been called a slut or called someone else a slut, just the concept in itself. It's so interesting the way she discusses this concept. And I want to play this little snippet for you because it's such a good way for us to open up this episode about sexuality, sex, and how so many of us that struggle with complex trauma, BPD, and other forms of emotional dysregulation deal with intimacy and the struggles we face around it. So without further ado, let's listen to this little clip of Natalie from ContraPoints talking about envy and sluts. Why does everyone hate sluts so much? Sluts never did nothing wrong to nobody. Open sexual promiscuity is in a way analogous to opulence. You're conspicuously enjoying something that other people want but may not be able to get. Many cultures have norms about modesty, for example, expecting women to cover their hair in public. This is usually explained as prophylaxis against male lust, but I wonder if it also serves to prevent a more generalized envy, which female beauty has a way of attracting. Men often slut shame because they want to control female sexuality. And by female sexuality, I do mean male sexuality, because often what they're really struggling to control is their own desire. But slut shaming is also done pretty viciously by women to each other. And that's a complicated thing. It's more than just envy. Sometimes it comes from a sense that a woman who's having casual sex with a lot of men is compromising the collective sex withholding power of the group, almost like she's crossing a picket line. But there's also sometimes a resentment that a woman who's showing skin is using her body to get unearned attention. And that smells like envy to me. I don't use my body to get attention, so no one should. The repressed feeling is maybe I'm a little jealous that she's getting all this attention by posting thirst traps. But you don't think that. You think, I am above this because I am chaste. I have class. I am a feminist. I would also suggest accusing her of pandering to the male gaze. That's, of course, the feminist way of calling someone low down a hoe bag skank. So everyone, that is Natalie from ContraPoints. She is pretty amazing. So I want to start this off by talking about unhealthy coping and compulsive sexual behavior. And I found a couple of quotes from a couple of people on Reddit, and they're talking about the way that they view their quote-unquote sexual promiscuity. I don't know about you, but I've always taken issue with the word promiscuous, slut, or the even more cringy phrase that a lot of mental health practitioners use, which is called sexual acting out. Acting out just makes me feel like annoying mom is being like, you're acting out. It's even more infantilizing. It makes you feel like even more of a child. So what I love is actually hearing experiences from real people and how their relationship with sex is self-harm. I think that is a much more appropriate way of viewing sexuality and the way that in which we can use sex to harm our lives, harm our ability to connect with people. And 
for many of you out there that are like me, the one part of BPD that I've always had a hard time identifying with is just the whole self-harm concept. I've never struggled with physically cutting myself or intense, frequent, recurring suicidal ideation. Like I've never really made a plan of suicide or anything like that, but my self-harm has been more self-sabotaging behaviors like extreme sexist self-harm, right? When I was Before I was really cognizant of what was going on, before I have done any kind of psychological work, and I was just in my phase of what I like to call the Molly show, the just never-ending toxic cycles of reactivity and making drastic decisions and ending up with really unhealthy people, it's so easy to label a lot of... I used to label a lot of the people I used to be with, like narcissists, right? I don't see this as a helpful way to view our lives. If we don't want people to call us borderlines, for example, or if you wouldn't want anyone to call you a slut, I just don't really like the label of narcissist either. I think that people are just varying levels of traumatized and unhealthy and unaware and unconscious. So I prefer to label these types of people as unconscious and unhealthy and disintegrated, right? Because that's actually what it is. Does it make their behavior okay? Absolutely the fuck not. But It's an accurate way of viewing things rather than just sticking a label on someone. Because I know that in the past, the way that I have treated people, I'm sure people could have been like, she's a toxic person. But in fact, I was just disintegrated. I was not conscious of my behavior. So I encourage you to think about that. Just give that some thought, you know, the way that you would want to be described in your most dysregulated moments. Are you maybe putting labels and labeling someone in your past as all good or all bad? When I look back, even some of the most quote-unquote toxic relationships that I had, there were moments of good in there. But unfortunately, because me and that person were so disintegrated, so unaware of our behavior, it just turned into a toxic shit show. So as I said before, I'm going to read a couple of quotes from these Reddit users that I thought were really thought-provoking. So the first one is from a user that calls herself Sally. She says, My constant switching between hypersexuality and sexual repulsion. I get into a mindset of dangerous sexual promiscuity, and then I suddenly find myself disgusted by anyone and everyone and never wanting to be touched ever again. I don't know if... Any of you can relate to that. I certainly can. I used to go on like binges of dating a lot of people. And I was always dating with the intention of wanting to find the one, right? I wasn't ever dating and sleeping around to be like, yeah, I just love this. I would often hook up with someone and then the morning after feel so disgusted and want to just run away and go take a shower and cuddle into my bed with my dog and never have sex again. The next quote is from a user named Leanne. And this one says, I have BPD and I would say my biggest embarrassing symptom would be promiscuity. 
every time I thought I was doing it for myself to make that person like me or love me more. And then it turns out that they end up leaving because I'm too complicated or they don't understand what BPD is when all I really want is one person. So compulsive sexual behavior, also known as sex addiction, hypersexuality, or nymphomania, I hate that word, can be described as an addiction to certain sexual fantasies, urges, or behaviors, as opposed to having a high sex drive hypersexuality is an all-consuming unhealthy relationship with sex and this form of addiction or compulsion is oftentimes seen prevalent in bipolar disorder borderline personality disorder and dependent personality disorder dpd i've never heard of dpd before this is also another reason why you'll hear me say this once and you'll hear me say it a thousand times I just hate these labels. I hate these disorder labels. This is just a reflection of trauma in our society. It's a reflection of us being sent the wrong signals about what intimacy is and what sex is. And if you listen to my interview with Alexandra Solomon this week, which I will say again, please listen to that before listening to this episode, it'll make a lot more sense. I loved that Alexandra is saying that the field of Mental health, psychiatry, therapy is moving towards moving away from the term borderline personality disorder and personality disorders in general and calling it complex trauma. I've heard so many people online when I've talked about this saying, you just don't want to be labeled as BPD, which is why you're moving towards you want to be associated with CPTSD because it's not as stigmatizing. And I was like, that's actually not true. I want to move towards complex trauma because it's more accurate. It's not a man-made disorder. It's not something that tells me, the people I love, which are you, my listeners, that their personality is disordered. When we say that we suffer from complex trauma, that is accurate to me. And I love that it's actually been affirmed by Alexandra Solomon, who's top in her field, for my friends, top in her field. She is going to the most cutting-edge conferences. So if you have a therapist and you listen to this podcast, I encourage you to play that first part of my interview with Dr. Alexandra Solomon for them, where we really talk about the new information in the field. Ask your therapist, do you believe that there should be personality disorders? Do you believe someone's personality can be inherently disordered? And see what kind of conversation that sparks with your therapist. I think it could really encourage some good conversation. So Let's move on. What does compulsive sexual behavior look like? So according to mayoclinic.org, some symptoms which may present in people struggling with hypersexuality are recurrent and intense sexual fantasies, urges, and behaviors which take up a lot of your time and feel as if they're beyond your control. You feel driven towards certain sexual behaviors that lead to a release of tension afterwards, but also feelings of guilt or shame. So what that's saying is like, do you feel like you need to go on those hinge dates, sleep with someone, then afterwards you feel extremely guilty and shameful like I did and wish you never did it. The next sign is unsuccessful attempts to control or reduce sexual fantasies, urges, or thoughts. Using compulsive sexual behavior as an escape, maybe to numb your feelings. Continuing to engage in sexual behaviors that have serious consequences such as sexually transmitted disease, loss of relationships, jobs, 
or financial or legal issues. This could look like constantly having to go and get plan B pills. It is so unhealthy for your body to take plan B. I am so lucky that I don't have multiple children (laughs) at this point and that I didn't contract some type of sexually transmitted disease because I engaged in unprotected sex quite a bit in my 20s because the guy told me that a condom just didn't feel the same. And so rather than protect myself, I chose to make them happy. And that is something that I highly advise against. I'm so lucky I came out of that unscathed, but I realize now just with horror looking back at the things that could have happened to me. That's part of the reason why I never take some kind of moral high ground when I hear people talking shit on women that have like three or four kids from different guys because it could have just as easily been me and it could just as easily been you or the next person, right? If you engaged in those types of behaviors, which is why I just don't think we should ever judge anybody. So thinking about do you engage in sexual behavior that has those serious consequences and you're not thinking about how to protect yourself So this type of compulsion can also lead to other unhealthy ways of coping like drugs, alcohol, cutting, burning, or even prostitution and sex trafficking. Or that's what the Mayo Clinic says, but this is also things like joining sugar daddy websites, creating an OnlyFans account. These types of things, as I said, unless you have done your work, I don't believe that traumatized people should be doing sex work if they can help it, right? I'm totally realizing that sometimes people don't have a choice and they feel like that's their only option. But I can't tell you the amount of friends that I have that have done sex work, that have worked in strip clubs, that have had OnlyFans, that are also traumatized and they're women, they happen to be women, and it completely destroys their ability to heal. And while it can be really quick, fast money, That's actually the problem with it is because it can be quite addicting. And then after a while, you're sucked into this lifestyle that you can't get out of. It's really, really scary stuff. So the next section that we're going to talk about is personality disorders and sex. And just note that whenever I'm mentioning BPD here or personality disorders, it's because this is what the research references you know how I feel, which I think personality disorder diagnoses are bullshit. And as we've heard from Dr. Solomon, the field is moving away from that, but it's going to take all the research and all this stuff years to catch up with this. So whenever you're out there finding information and it's referring to BPD and personality disorders, I encourage you, my subscribers, know that I can speak more freely to all of you, right? not going to probably say this on the podcast as directly as I do to you, my subscribers, but it's bullshit. Your personality is not disordered. BPD is not a real thing. The feelings you feel are real. The symptoms you feel are very real. The trauma you've experienced is very real. But borderline personality disorder is literally a label that someone created and decided was a thing, right? And it has perpetuated the belief for millions and millions of people 
that their personality is something is wrong with them, that they are broken and incurable. Disorder insinuates a disease. When you hear some people talking about borderline personality disorder, they will literally tell you the best thing that you can hope for is for the, dis- the disorder to go into remission, right? Have you heard that before? There's no cure. You can only hope for it to go into remission. That's literally like cancer. It's like saying that this disorder is like a tumor inside of your body that is just going to pop out at one point later in your life. I find that to be such a harmful way to speak to people, to, to that a harmful thing to put in front of people that are trying to heal from trauma. You do not have some hidden tumor of borderline personality disorder lurking inside of you that is always going to be there until you die. I don't believe that. I believe that you are a traumatized person who needs to learn about their coping mechanisms, learn about the ways you numb yourself, learn how to manage your reactivity and self-soothe and manage your emotion dysregulation so that you can live a better quality of life. Life is always going to be hard. We're always going to have traumas that we go through. But if you do the work, you'll never go back to that unconscious, completely unconscious, disintegrated version of yourself. You will always be moving one step forward on your hero's journey. There's going to be setbacks, but you can never go all the way back to square one because you can't unknow what you know. Does that make sense? So let's continue with (laughs) this personality disorders and sex piece. It's estimated that over 90% of people who struggle with any form of sexual addiction also struggle with a personality disorder. That's what this research that I'm reading you says. And people diagnosed with dependent personality disorder, which I've actually never heard of, by the way, gravitate towards this compulsion as many believe sex is the way to love. Now, I'm not familiar with dependent personality disorder. Do you see all these different quote-unquote disorder meanings? As I just went on a rant about before, this is all trauma. And someone I would imagine, I don't know much about dependent personality disorder, but how many of us listening right now can relate to thinking sex is the way to love? So many of us were raised that way. So... The research goes on to say, as for bipolar disorder, compulsive sexual behavior may result in what is known as manic episodes or hypomania, which is a lesser form of mania. Hypersexuality in individuals struggling with BPD tends to lean towards impulsive or high-risk behaviors such as sexual masochism. As you know, if you are a long-time listener, as you will be if you're hearing this episode, I struggled for a long time with using sex to kind of fill that empty void inside of me. I felt a sense of closeness with people, and I, I had a mistaken belief that if I had sex with someone, they would love me. And that was how I got attention from being a pretty young girl, from being a young teen, I started to get the attention of men and I was sexualized. And so therefore I was starved for validation and love that I wasn't getting at home. I felt very much like a burden at home. I didn't feel like I was loved in 
I felt like my parents loved me. I knew they loved me and I knew that they would do anything for me if they knew that I was in trouble. But I didn't think that my parents were interested in me, if that makes sense. And maybe you can relate to this if you're listening to this. And it's a really confusing experience to feel like you know you your parents love you, but you're not quite sure if they really like you all that much. And I, when I started to get attention from men, it felt great because it was the attention I was starving for. And I truly believe now at my age of 32, looking back, that if I grew up in a home where my parents were really interested in my thoughts, my feelings, nurtured me spiritually, taught me about my own inherent sexuality made me feel like I was a person that they wanted to get to know. I wouldn't have been so starved for attention that I would have gone looking for it in the way that I did. And maybe you can relate to that too. So the research goes on talking about sexual masochism and BPD and the connection there. I really do not like the term sexual masochism, but let's read on about what it says here. So most people think about self-harm more in terms of like cutting or burning themselves, your skin, right? It's very stereotypical of a person with BPD. You imagine them with self-harm scars all over their arms. And while that's very real, and I know many people who have to deal with that, if you listen to the episode where I interviewed my friend Jared Gelman, he struggles with that, right? Um, and that's a very real thing. But it's said that hypersexuality in people struggling with BPD can also lead to what's called a sexual masochism. And this can be physically and psychologically harmful to anyone, but especially to those of us who struggle with emotion dysregulation. Sexual masochism is said to be the allowance of physical pain during sex, and this can create a release of endorphins that leaves the individual with a high or a feeling of calm, and this has the same effect as other self-injury behaviors. And it can also be used to recreate previous traumatic sexual experiences and the need for control over a situation where previously there was no control. So essentially what that's saying is it can be an attempt to change the outcome of past trauma. If we were sexually abused or raped in the past, maybe we develop a... Did you just hear my cat just meowed in the background? Lola just meowed. It can... We can develop an obsession with maybe of wanting to get hurt during sex as a way that our psyche, without being conscious of it, is trying to turn that past trauma around. But at the same time, it keeps what your sexuality constantly defined by that same trauma as opposed to an authentic desire. So we can tell ourselves that, you know, we love to get hurt during sex and that's a passion that we have and that it's a kink. But sometimes, and I repeat sometimes, especially those of us with BPD or struggle with emotion dysregulation, it prevents us from 
developing a more grounded and embodiment of our sexuality, connection with our sexuality, rather, as we discussed in our episode with Dr. Alexandra Solomon, right? So BPD and sexual masochism can share an uneasy relationship stemming from sexual victimization. The roots of borderline personality disorder are often deeply connected to early traumas, which often sparks the evolution of sexual masochism. And by treating your BPD using trauma-focused therapies, it helps us better understand our desires and our behaviors and discover how to experience a more positive expression of sexuality, right? So let's unpack that phrase a little bit. It's really important that if you are seeking treatment for BPD, CPTSD, any other type of trauma-based mental struggles, that you seek a therapist that uses a trauma-informed lens for their therapy. This is the only way to really unpack where your desires and your behaviors and your coping mechanisms come from. And a trauma-informed approach is going to work with you and make you feel less stigmatized. If you have a trauma-informed therapist, they are likely to believe that the diagnosis of BPD is a little bit bullshit, right? They believe that you are someone who's endured trauma and they believe that you need just need to work to better understand where that trauma came from, how it plays out in your current life so that you can learn new ways to overcome that and heal that, right? They're not going to be the type of therapist to say, you have BPD, which is incurable and the best you can hope for is for it to go into remission and potentially come back in the future. I wouldn't want to see a therapist like that. That's, that's what I can tell you. So when Fifty Shades of Grey was first published in 2011, it actually opened up a widespread discourse about the nature of sexual masochism to audiences that have never been contemplating the issue. And Is masochism just a fancy word for victimization, or is it an expression of healthy sexual desire? That was the question, right? Within the BDSM community, of course, you know, these questions are nothing new. They've been debated for centuries, and particularly since someone named the Marquis of Sade introduced the language of sadomasochism to the masses over two centuries ago. This is an old, old debate. And the answer is, is that there's no one answer to these questions. And in certain contexts, masochism can be manifestations of taboo, but ultimately healthy sexual interests. So if you're listening to this, you know, you know in your heart, if you like rough sex or if you feel like you like being hurt during sex, you know in your heart of hearts, right now your intuition can tell you. Does that come from, does it feel healthy or does it feel like it might have traumatic roots? You know that in your heart of hearts. I can't answer that for you. For me, I know that it had traumatic roots. So if it does have traumatic roots, this desire to be hurt during sex becomes something darker and it blurs the lines between positive and sexual expression and abuse and This is particularly true when these BPD traits and 
masochistic sexuality overlap. So the relationship between BPD and sexuality is really complicated, according to the research. Sexual impulsivity and promiscuity are a critical factor in BPD diagnoses. And what that means is by being a critical factor is if you are presenting to a mental health provider and you describe all of your symptoms and you describe, you know, sexual promiscuity or sexual acting out, they may immediately kind of start thinking about a BPD diagnosis. And this is a pretty controversial thing too, because sexual impulsivity and promiscuity tend to be evaluated differently for men and women, right? You know this. A man who's out there having a bunch of different sexual partners is seen very, very differently than a woman. A great example of this is, as many of you know, I did an interview with Dr. Daniel Fox, who is a very popular YouTube personality and clinical psychologist who does amazing work with borderline personality disorder. And he's written a couple of books. And in my interview with Dr. Fox, he also live streamed it on his YouTube channel as well as the episode here. And I highly recommend you listen to that. I described that in a year I had had sex with like 60 people. And honestly, guys, <laughs> when I think about that, I'm such an exaggerator. I don't think it was exactly 60 people. I don't, I actually haven't counted how many people I've had sex with. I, I, whenever any like do, I didn't have a journal that I, I tick off. But all I know is that I definitely was very sexually active one particular year. And when I tell you the YouTube comments that came through were like, that is so disgusting. You should be ashamed of yourself. Someone even commented, there's no way she has BPD, that she has, she has NPD. She's a narcissist because she had sex with so many people. And I thought to myself, would these comments be the same if I were a guy? I don't think so. So what may be defined as promiscuity in a woman for a man may be dismissed as simply sowing his wild oats, right? There's that old phrase. But the important piece of the puzzle is not simply that sexual behavior is impulsive or promiscuous, but that it's potentially self-damaging, my friends. That's why I call it sexist self-harm. That's that's my term. And this is where BPD and masochism meet. And I say sexist self-harm is a form of masochism. You don't have to necessarily have sex and want to get beaten up during sex or choked or whatever the classic when you're thinking of Fifty Shades of Grey. But my version of sex as self-harm was just having more partners than I actually really even wanted to. I felt a deep after sex with someone that I didn't know very well, or maybe I just, it. I didn't go and just meet random people in a bar and go have sex in a bathroom. It was me being constantly on dating apps convincing myself that this next person was the one and sleeping with them maybe on the first date after we had an amazing dinner and they told me everything I wanted to hear and I was enamored with them. And so then I would have sex with them. And if they didn't want to use a condom, they're like, oh, it doesn't feel the same. It's fine. I had maybe a few too many drinks and then I would do it. And then in the morning, I would feel so, so guilty. And I told this story on an earlier episode of the podcast, I think, where I was in a bar in LA once and there was this guy who was just fucking clearly very wealthy. He was at a table and he invited me and my friend over to his table and I ended up going home with him and he was driving. He took me to his 
We left the club and he took me to his very fucking nice car. I'm not a car fanatic, but it was like a Ferrari or some like, you know, suicide door car. And we got in and he was clearly drunk. And I got into his car with this person I didn't even know. And he was driving like 80 miles an hour, drunk as hell, down the streets of LA at like two in the morning. And I remember feeling so scared. And I, there, I knew there was nothing I could do. I was in the car. I knew from the moment that I left that club that I, A, I shouldn't get in the car with this drunk person. I shouldn't get in the car with this person I don't know. We pull up to his apartment. And when I tell you, I'm not lying. We pull up to his apartment. We get in, we, we get out and he pulls into like this underground building, you know, like in LA, like they have parking garages. So it's like in like a concrete parking garage underneath the building. And then you get into the elevator to go up to the apartment. And we pull into this parking garage, which is like stereotypical, very rapey parking garage. And I just remember feeling this like really scared feeling. And I'm not kidding you. He gets out of his car. You're not going to believe me. This is like a movie, but I'm, I swear on Cody, my dog's life. Get out of the car. He opens the trunk of his car and there is just a stack of automatic weapons in his car. And I was like, oh my God. And he hands one to me. And I was like, he pulls it out. And he's like, see, look, do you want to hold it? And I was like, no, I don't fucking want to hold it. But I was like, haha, because I was terrified. I didn't know what to say. We put, he puts it back in. I don't know what he was doing, but he clearly got off on like the shock value of like showing me that he had these. And then what do I do? I go up into this guy's apartment with him. When I think back on this, my friends, I am just like, I don't know what the fuck I was doing. We get up into his apartment. There's coke everywhere. There are guns in there. It's a beautiful apartment. And it he has like designer clothes in the closet. Like, I don't know what this guy did. And he was young too. I think he was probably like 22. So I think he had like really rich parents. I don't know. Actually, I don't even know what the hell. But I slept with him, right? And after I slept with him, he was passed out and I felt this deep fear and I snuck out of bed and I left his apartment and I went and walked out onto the street and got an Uber and went home. And that's, to me, an example of sexual masochism, in my opinion, because that was sexist self-harm. I cannot believe looking back on that. And this guy was so rich, he could have made me disappear. If he was a, a, like a fucking American psycho type dude, he could have killed me. I'm lucky to be alive. I look back on that and I am full of such compassion for that girl that did that. And I'm telling you this story because that's, that's the truth of sexual masochism. It's not necessarily just being choked during sex or whatever. It's deliberately putting yourself in positions that are dangerous and harmful because you so deeply are attracted like a moth to a flame to the attention by someone of someone because we were so deprived and starved of it in childhood. That's an extreme example, but there were less extreme examples where I went out on dates in in the evening with a relatively normal seeming guy who didn't have a fucking car full of automatic weapons and a apartment full of cocaine where I just went home with them that night. I didn't know these people very well and anything could have happened to me. So if this is you, I strongly encourage you. And also this can just be 
even knowing someone, but just not using a condom when you are, when you know that you should, because you don't know this person. You could end up getting pregnant or catching a disease or anything of that mat for that matter. And I felt terrified to ask people to wear a condom. I felt terrified to ask to wait to have sex with someone. Even though my body wanted to wait, my heart wanted to wait, I felt like if I asked them to wait, that they wouldn't like me, right? And that they would ditch me. That, my friends, is sexist self-harm. That, my friends, is sexual masochism to me. So the research that I have written down here goes on to say sexual masochism has long been anecdotally observed in people suffering from borderline personality disorder. This past April, however, the connection went beyond anecdotal, entering the realm of empirical evidence. According to a study published in the Archive of Sexual Behavior, researchers found that sexual masochism disorder was 10 times higher in BPD women than in women with other personality disorders. Furthermore, those women who identified as masochists reported more child sexual abuse, more hostile dismissing attachments, higher sensation seeking, and more frequently exploratory slash impersonal sex fantasies than BPD without sexual masochism. What that says to me too, this women with BPD experience more impersonal sexual fantasies. To me, impersonal sexual fantasies make me think about how I found it much easier to be intimate and have sex with people that I didn't know very well, maybe that I'd only been on a couple of dates with, then I even have sexual encounters with my partner now, who I've been with for three over three years, who loves me dearly. I'm struggling now more with sex and intimacy now in my committed, strong, healthy, safe relationship than I was when I was single. That, my friends, is unhealthy, and maybe you can relate to that. The findings reveal that women with borderline personality disorder are at significantly increased risk for participating in high-risk sexual activities that could compound existing suffering and lead to serious emotional and physical injury. Well, that is absolutely accurate for me, given the story that I just told you about the fucking automatic gun drug dealer that I went had sex with. So the next piece of our research here says the traumatic roots of BPD. So what accounts for the relationship between borderline personality disorder and sexual masochism? The answers are complex and not fully understood. However, researchers believe that sexual abuse likely plays a significant role. Indeed, the connections between BPD and sexual trauma are undeniable. A study published last year in the Industrial Psychiatry Journal found that approximately 50% of people diagnosed with BPD experienced some form of childhood sexual abuse, and others have estimated the number to be as high as 75%. While the exact causes of BPD remain elusive, it's believed that the condition often develops as a disordered way of coping with the overwhelming stress brought on by traumatic events. Becky Oberg writes, quote, BPD is a natural reaction to unnatural trauma. I'm going to read that again because I really, really like that quote a lot. BPD is a natural reaction to unnatural trauma. That is powerful. And I think that might be the most accurate thing in this quote-unquote research. How you're reacting to sex, listener, listening to this, is a completely natural reaction given to how you were socialized 
and sexualized growing up. It is a natural reaction. You do not have to have any shame in the way that you and how you're feeling about anything that I'm sharing right now. It is a perfectly natural reaction to the unnatural trauma that you experienced as a child, teen, etc., or or even a young adult. As such, sexual trauma is often the nucleus of BPD itself. The fear of abandonment, fractured sense of identity, unstable relationships, and poor emotional regulation all germinate from the extraordinarily destabilizing events that disallow healthy psychological development. The emotional volatility, impulsivity, and self-injury so often present in those with BPD can then be understood as logical ways to modulate deep inner pain and exert control over a life in constant turmoil. Damn. What that's saying is that you should not have any shame about the way that you feel with sex. Don't have any shame about the way that you struggle with sex and intimacy or if you have an unhealthy uh, relationship with it. So... The research I put together continues with this next piece called The Evolution of Sexual Masochism. Self-injury can mean many things. Sometimes it comes in the form of cutting. Sometimes it comes in the form of burning. Sometimes it comes in the form of hitting. And sometimes it comes in the form of sexual masochism. Just as in the case of other self-injurious practices, physical pain during sexual activity, sexual activity rather, can release endorphins that create a rush, a high, or simply a feeling of calmness. In this context, masochism provides a powerful coping mechanism to address what is experienced as unbearable emotional distress. But sexual masochism is not solely a chemical experience. Rather, it can allow you to, in essence, recreate the dynamics of traumatic sexual experiences and reframe them within an ostensibly consensual context. This can help you achieve a sense of retroactive control over situations in which you experienced a loss of control. In some ways, This approach functions as a dysfunctional type of exposure therapy as you seek to counteract the damage of the original trauma. Ultimately, however, it doesn't work. Engaging in traumatic sexual practices does not erase past violations, and it keeps your sexuality defined by trauma rather than authentic desire. In other cases, sexual masochism evolves out of early conditioning. If your introductions to sex happened within a context of violence, degradation, and powerlessness. It's possible that your own sense of sexuality came to revolve around these qualities. Sex, violence, and victimization have become inextricably connected in your mind, and your physicality preventing you from being able to feel desire for other types of sexual interactions. Even if you recognize the destructive nature of this phenomenon, you may feel powerless to change it. Now, research in the past has actually linked both impulsivity and abandonment to what they call sexually risky behaviors. The clinical and diagnostic criteria for BPD inherently states that people that suffer with BPD and meet criteria for it as being what the research calls attachment-seeking individuals. And as those of us that struggle with BPD traits or emotion dysregulation or complex trauma, we have higher levels of impulsivity and feelings of abandonment, which means we're automatically more likely to engage in attachment-seeking behavior and engage in what researchers actually call something called survival sex. And 
Survival sex is defined as the exchange of sex for money, goods, housing, or other material items needed to remain personally and socially viable. So, and survival sex is linked to many negative outcomes, including victimization, suicide attempts, and STDs. And for some, for example, in homeless populations that have no resources and support and feel no other choice, they feel forced to engage in survival sex. And the facts are is that survival sex of any kind have negative and harmful consequences to someone's individual physical and mental health and puts them at risk for additional trauma. Now, it can be easy to get hung up on survival sex being just homeless people having sex to survive out on the streets. But what I think isn't talked about enough is how many of us with BPD willingly enter into the world of survival sex through sex work. And sex work now is much more socially acceptable and almost trendy with things like OnlyFans. And as you heard me briefly mention in my episode with Dr. Solomon, my experience with being a sugar baby and working in poker rooms in LA. And I'll tell you, I dabbled in sex work and it was a dark, dark time in my life. I have friends who have worked in strip clubs, either as hostesses or strippers themselves. And unless you have done significant inner work and you have healed much of your own trauma, you cannot practice sex work healthily. I want to make that very clear. If you are listening to this and you have an OnlyFans account and you think that that's going to be in a way that you can make money before you've healed your own trauma and have a deep understanding of your own defense mechanisms, ways of numbing, you are sorely mistaken, my friend. And I wish I would have had someone warn me. So I'm stepping in here to warn you because you deserve to hear all sides, not just the glittery version you see splashed all over Instagram. There are so many sex workers who make this look glamorous. I have friends that, that do. And then I talk to them and I hear about how they want to kill themselves or how they can't even look at guys in the same way anymore. Because when you are in this environment, when you're working in strip clubs, when you have an OnlyFans account, when you are doing sex work of any kind, you see the dark, dark side of human beings. And it's really hard to recover healthily from trauma and find deep and meaningful connections when you are in this world. And I go back to this definition of survival sex. And that definition is the exchange of sex for money, goods, housing, or other material items needed to remain personally and socially viable. Now, this could even just be dating a rich guy that you don't even like so that you can live in his nice house and have him pay for your lifestyle because you've convinced yourself that you are too broken and ruined to make something of yourself, right? This is why the lines of, in my opinion, sugar baby work and stuff like that, what's the difference between a sugar baby who's just making it very apparent that she's dating these rich guys for money than just a girl who is out there actively seeking out a rich guy to date on a dating app? I think they're one in the same, except the sugar baby is just a little more open about what she's doing. <laughs> you may disagree with me, but that's how I feel. 
And I found myself on a sugar baby site. And did I make some, a lot of money doing it? Yeah. Did it feel horrible? Yeah. And the reason why it was so stressful is because I, for a long time, was able to be a sugar baby without ever having to be intimate with guys because I was stringing them along. When it comes to the private poker parties and karaoke rooms that I worked briefly when I was living in LA and I was between jobs, this was actually at a time that I had just had to leave a job in tech because I was sexually harassed. And what had happened at my job was my female manager said in front of a Zoom call full of about 50 other people, she had mentioned that I should dress in a different way to meetings next time to not distract with my sexy body. And this is what she said. This is how she said it is. Well, let's make sure that we select our outfits carefully because we don't want to distract with our sexy bodies. And I was the only other woman on the call. It was a call full of men who didn't, who were in the development team that never would go to meetings. And by this point, some people may think that that's not that big of a deal, but I had just had it. I hit a breaking point and It had been so many jobs by this point that I had been subjected to sexual harassment and comments like this that something in me snapped. And right after that call, when I was at that company and I was working in Los Angeles at the time, I contacted a lawyer in New York who advertised himself as someone who would take on cases like this. And essentially, if you won, he would just take a percentage of the suit. And I ended up winning that lawsuit. And I got a settlement of around $35,000. And I wish that I could say that I had been responsible with that money, but I was not. I was a traumatized person. And I ended up blowing a lot of that money. And then I ended up finding myself not wanting to go back into traditional work. So what did I do? I became a sugar baby and I was working these like poker rooms. And some girls that I knew in LA said, if you work these private poker parties where I could name some celebrities that I saw at these poker parties, but I don't want to get myself into any trouble. But you could make a lot of money at these parties and you'd make it in tips. And essentially, you were just a cocktail waitress. You just brought the guys drinks while they were playing poker and you were eye candy. So degrading now that I think back on it. But I hated my time doing that so much because the way I was spoken to, the way I was looked at, the way I was touched was so disgusting. It makes me shiver to think. And this kind of stuff is happening all the time. Women are even sex trafficked at these kinds of parties. And I ended up leaving that work. I remember one night I just left in the middle of a poker party and the woman who kind of like, there was this like really strict Eastern European woman who was like managing the cash. She's like, if you leave, you're not getting paid shit. And I said, that's fine. I don't want to get paid. She's like, you'll never work in this circuit again. And I said, that's also fine. (laughs) So I wanted to talk a little bit about my own involvement in this area and why I found myself there before I start talking about all of the problems with this kind of sex work. Because I'm not talking about this from a moral high ground. I'm not saying like, you should never do this. I've never done it. 
because there are a lot of women or other people out there that judge sex workers and they've never actually done it themselves. And I think that unless you haven't done it yourself, you're in no place to judge. And I'm not judging either. I'm talking about real talk, me to you, to my listener, about some of the problems with this survival sex that I'm describing now that isn't just being homeless on the street and feeling like you have to sleep with other people to survive. This is survival sex that is trendy. And right now that happens to be OnlyFans. That's the main thing. When I was doing this, OnlyFans wasn't even a thing yet. It was just sugar baby websites. I think this was probably back in like 2015 or something that I was doing this, 2016. And now we're in a whole new ball game with the virtual ways that we can do sex work. Part of me also feels like we've tricked ourselves into believing that because we're doing it from the comfort of our own homes, that it's safer. And I'm here to tell you that it's not. Sure, it's safer than me actually physically going to someone's house or meeting someone in person, but it's not psychologically safer. So I'm going to go through and talk about five problems that I think come up for me when it comes to this trendy survival sex that a lot of us are engaging in via things like OnlyFans. So the first problem is we like to think of ourselves as business owners and entrepreneurs when we're dabbling in sex work. But the reality is, is that if you are especially a woman listening to this, our body is a depreciating asset. And what that means is that over time, our value in this sex work space is going to decrease over time. It's fucked up, but it's true. And why? Because new people are joining these platforms like OnlyFans every single day, making us feel like we have to compete to improve our product, which is our body, right? And then that brings a whole nother aspect into thinking of your body as a product, which is incredibly unhealthy. So thinking about always having to improve your product is fine if you're in something like a business of making candles, right? How can I make better candles so that I can compete in the candle industry? But when the product is you, this can get really psychologically dangerous really, really fast. So what does this look like? We start investing in injections, surgeries like me. I got breast augmentations. I was getting injections into my lips that made me look super crazy. (laughs) But I lost sight of reality. And soon you're investing more than you're actually making. Getting your nails done, getting tan, buying new outfits so that you always look different on screen, getting injections, getting surgeries. And this improvement of your quote-unquote product, your body is a full-time job. It could put you in debt. And you have no time to dedicate to real self-improvement and inner work. And I'm speaking from experience. So the second problem is that the dark side of this business is very, very dark. You think that if you're going into OnlyFans, you're going to be selling videos and a few pictures or maybe going out to dinner with a rich guy who will pay for your time. But that's not the reality of how most people on these sites make their money. OnlyFans girls make money in their DMs. They do things like selling their underwear, selling personal videos, meeting guys. Guys, the guys that are on OnlyFans specifically, they are not just going to be satisfied with pictures. 
that's just an entry point. That's what you don't hear spoken about. My friend who does OnlyFans, she has guys DMing her to actually pay her to send them videos of her farting on camera. It's like some guys actually want to pay to humiliate you, right? And not only that, eventually it always get to the point where they want you to fly out to meet them in person. It will come to that. This will eventually lead to sex or something else if you allow this to happen. And if you see someone claiming to live an ultra luxurious lifestyle off of OnlyFans, they are almost 100% going far and above just posting pictures and videos to maintain that lifestyle. And for anyone, but especially when you have BPD, that lifestyle can be psychologically and often physically dangerous. So at this point, you are living a luxurious lifestyle. You probably have nice bags, nice cars, this expensive apartment, and now you have to maintain those expenses and more expensive lifestyle. So this is how the deeper you become involved, the more you have to give up of yourself, the more you have to give away. And then it becomes a game of how far are you going to go to maintain that lifestyle, the upkeep. There are huge stakes at play and you don't realize how that feels until you feel like you're having to do it to make rent. You're doing something that goes against your authentic self. It is self-abandonment. And trust me, you feel it. It makes an impact on your psyche. Now, I heard once personally through a friend of a girl who was offered $25,000 on OnlyFans to shave her head. You hear me? (laughs) So if a man can offer her $25,000 to shave her head, what do you think he'd offer her to fly out to his condo in Miami? Right? And how can you say no to that? The deeper you get, the riskier it gets. Now, problem number three is the psychological impact. Imagine what this kind of stuff does to your psyche. The dopamine hits that you're getting when you're getting $20,000 to fly out to San Francisco or Miami or New York, it's out of control. Likes, DMs, $25,000 here, $10,000 there. What does that do? It drives home to us that relationships are transactional. It gets us addicted to this type of validation, the wrong kind of validation. It makes it very difficult to transition back into a normal, healthy relationship. It makes you feel disconnected from friends and family that are pursuing healthy connections. You know, friends, I became skeptical that real love even existed anymore because I was seeing the darkest, loneliest places, the darkest, loneliest people and men doing the darkest things. So problem number four is this. Our history on the internet is forever. And when we think of things like this, it's important to remember that our tendency as people with BPD, emotion dysregulation, complex trauma to make impulsive decisions, right? Even if you erase all of your content, it's already out there on the interwebs, my friends. Someone out there does have it saved on their device. Everyone saves things. Look how easy it is for one old tweet to ruin a celebrity's entire career now. We often don't think about these things when we start sending news or posting to OnlyFans. And if one of those things comes out of the woodwork 10 years from now, we'll have to pay the piper. 
And we'll have to be ready to have to reface and be re-traumatized by some of those impulsive actions we've made. And it's best to think about that now before you made that huge decision. And the long-term consequences are serious. And I don't want to see other young people, regardless of their orientation or gender, fall into this trap because it's so easy to fall into. It's easy money. And there's a saying, with fast money comes slow consequences. I'm going to say that again. With fast money comes slow consequences. And I think that's appropriate here. So we need to be careful because the choices we make today will affect our future opportunities and our future psychological state. And again, I'm saying all of this with no judgment. I've sent videos and pictures that I probably shouldn't have sent to people that I don't trust. It's one thing to send a sexy picture or video to someone you're in a long-term committed relationship with, but the impulsive things that I did in my younger times and younger years, I'm worried, you know, these things may come back to haunt me. And if they do, I'll be willing to pay the piper, as they say. I will be willing to say, look, that is a choice that I made. And I want to, if that ever, if it ever comes out, I'm saying this to you now here on the, on the podcast, I'll be willing to own that. I'll be willing to forgive my, my younger self and have love for her and compassion. But it's something that if I can save another person from having to deal with, I want to warn you now. And if you're in the same position as I am and you're thinking, oh, fuck, I have definitely sent some videos and pictures that I regret and you're starting to feel shame and, and worry, just know that probably 10 years from now, 20 years from now, every single person on earth is going to have nudes floating around and it's going to be less of a big deal than it is now. But still, if you can prevent further traumatization of yourself, maybe just really think about in the future who you are sharing intimate things with, right? So don't shame yourself, but I'm sharing this in case I can save someone from future pain. And I think it's important that we talk about it because the only narrative that seems to exist now is don't shame anyone for sex work, which means just let people do what they want. I think there's a nuance there. I think there's a middle area, a middle ground that we can say, yes, there are healthy forms of sex work exist. There are fully integrated, psychologically healthy people who have done their inner work that have integrated their trauma, healed from their trauma, doing sex work that is sacred healing work, as Dr. Alexandra Solomon said in our last episode. But the percentage of those people is very small. And the percentage of highly traumatized, especially women and girls out there doing sex work, OnlyFans, it's much higher. And we need to talk about these things. It's so, so important. So problem number four, being on sites like Sugar Daddy websites and OnlyFans is a very isolating experience. Creating content or even consuming the content the people on the other side buying OnlyFans content. Think about it. You're typically in a dark room spending time and money on people who only see you as a transactional object. That goes for the person who has the OnlyFans account. Say, for instance, I have an OnlyFans account. The guy or person who's buying my content sees me as a transactional object and I see them as a transactional object. The humanity is completely removed. And getting further and further away from true connectedness I thought it would be empowering 
that if men were going to treat me like shit, I might as well get paid for it. But I was wrong and it worsened my BPD. Don't let that happen to you. So problem number five is that it gets us into situations that perpetuate the belief that the world is a dangerous and scary place. As you heard in the story that I told you earlier in this episode, I got myself into very scary situations. This is big sister talk here. I'm not trying to scare you, but I'm trying to help you understand all sides of this so that you can make the best choice for you. Reconsider this choice if this is something you want to pursue. I want you to win. I want you to win in relationships. And this type of work on a consistent basis makes it hard for us to enjoy sex in a healthy, secure relationship. It distorts our reality and view of what normal is. It's a rabbit hole where nothing is ever enough. It is a toxic addiction to validation from very dangerous sources. Okay? Now, I realize that some people who are listening to this may be involved in this type of work now and have no immediate option to stop. I understand that. I've been there. And if you're in this business now, my advice to you would be to start saving and investing your money if possible. Some of you are like, I don't do OnlyFans. I don't do sex work. But have you had uh, casual and unsafe hookups often with people you don't know? Have you sent news or explicit videos to near strangers? Are you doing sex work for free, pretty much? (laughs) This causes some of the same issues for us. Just because you're not getting paid for it doesn't mean you're not kind of replicating some of this same behavior. I don't know when some of these things that I've sent will come out of the woodwork and it makes me sick. So take this advice from me before you send anything give yourself to someone, ask yourself, is this for validation? Am I trying to do this to try to prove my value to someone who hasn't even earned my intimacy? If they didn't ever reply to your picture, right? If you sent a nude to this person and they never replied, would you be full of shame? Because if so, it's probably not a sound decision. This stuff is mentally exhausting and so bad for your mental health and recovery from any kind of other mental health struggles. I love this rule of if they didn't reply, would you feel shame? And I like to use, tell people to use this even in texts, right? Think about this before you send a wall of text to someone. If you feel like they're ignoring you, I would do this all the time. Man, the amount of guys that I would send like 10 paragraphs to, don't send anything that you wouldn't feel completely fine with not getting a reply to. Obviously, we're all going to feel a certain type of way if we don't get a reply to something, so don't take that all the way to the extreme. But it's like try to send things and then send it only if you're like, if they didn't reply, yeah, I might feel like a twinge of annoyance, but I wouldn't feel like a shame spiral because of it. So in summary, this type of work, OnlyFans, Sugar Daddy's site, survival sex in this way it develops the habit of easy money it took me such a long time trying to get myself back into normal jobs after this it took me a long time to undo the damage of viewing myself as a product that needed to be improved to undo the belief that relationships were transactional that we have to do something perform sexuality to be valuable you don't 
you're already valuable. And I've heard of OnlyFans referred to as monetized loneliness, and I think that is very accurate. Ask yourself, is your self-esteem tied to the other person having an orgasm? Thinking you look beautiful? Is it just another way for you to feel good about yourself? You're missing the true beauty of sex and intimacy if that's the case. There's a whole side of it that you're unable to access. Heal first and then dip your toe into intimacy only when you're ready to approach it from a reciprocal perspective, right? Give and take on both sides. So I found some anonymous quotes from some people with BPD who have done sex work. And I just want to read these to you. The first one says, I used to be a cam girl. I'd say, don't do it. I'm jaded and disgusted by men in general now, after seeing how grossly most of them acted. It's been negative for my mental health, I'd say, but to each their own. I also got outed, though, where people shared my content, etc. It was very humiliating. The next quote, I would steer away as someone who is BPD and went through that hypersexual stage and ended up attempting suicide because of how much I loathed and regretted what I'd done and the fear that I can't take it back. I've had friends who went through the same issues and even comforted and supported them through this. I'm now 24 and a female, and my friends are in this general age range, so I'm not sure how different it is for guys, but I'd assume so. Sometimes you end up feeling violated and hating yourself for being a victim of BPD, which made you susceptible to have these urges. It's a path that can result in spiraling downward, things that could be good and feel empowering initially, but ends up taking a slow mental toll, and sometimes BPD urges could cause you to feel the urge to escalate things, digging a deeper hole to get out of. Focus on loving yourself and self-empowerment. Try to replace those urges with something positive. It's your BPD talking to you. The next quote. My BPD ex was just getting back into sex work when I met her. We're queer, and this is fairly common in my circles. I thought it was hot at first and kind of badass. At first, she was very intelligently explained her desire to do it, despite having a master's degree as a reclamation of her sexuality and femininity, a fuck you to all the men who assaulted her without paying, and even the shitty high school boyfriend who basically sex trafficked her. She also connected it to her culture. I won't say which country for anonymity, but her mom is an immigrant, and in her culture, sex work is much more common and near, not nearly as stigmatized. As you can see, I was dealing with a highly intelligent person. However, by the end of our relationship, which is over now and ended her with her discarding me, splitting on me, I'm learning the lingo from this group. It became clear to me that sex work was not safe or healthy for her. She constantly let clients push her boundaries, and if I said anything, I just didn't understand how it was, she'd tell me. One guy she saw for a while I think she actually had feelings for, and she got kind of sad when I mentioned him. There were obviously stand-ins for her shitbird father, and I guess I was too. I didn't realize until it was too late. To cap it all off, in the splitting black phase, she had been posting about me on her sex worker Facebook group, calling me whorephobic, posting photos of, in my, of my private journal, which I did not know she had read, and calling me out for toxic masculinity. I'm a masculine presenting queer person. My friend who is a straight sex worker told me about the post and said it actually offended her that my ex had such a supportive ally and pro-sex work partner and would call me those things. I think she was just re-traumatizing herself the whole time. Just one of those many things we were both in denial of during the relationship. The next quote. I've never had an issue sleeping with strangers. I've done it quite a lot in the past. I've never had any pleasant sexual experiences with anyone other than myself, but I really love the feeling of seducing men. I'm really good at it too. It makes me feel wanted. It gives me a kind of drug-like rush. It makes me feel a little more alive. 
I've been in a relationship with a guy for two years and perfected my skills to the point where sleeping with men feels like just another daily task to me. I'll probably never be able to enjoy it like other women, but at least I can make a living out of it. It's really no different to any other job to me. All jobs are basically selling yourself. You sell your time, your body, and sometimes even your health. The next quote. I have BPD and worked as an escort prostitute for some time. I completely relate to what you're describing, but I know this. Sex work is very harsh on your mental health, so be ready for this. Try to do it when you're stable enough. Learn from me. Next quote. I don't think it's weird, but I don't think it will be what you think it will be. I worked as a video editor in the porn industry and got to know some of the performers. Most of them are really high-priced prostitutes on the other side. It is not easy. They do make a lot of money, but none of them seem to be really well off. It's much more exhausting work than you might think, so they often spend as much money as they make. And if you're BPD, it's likely you will too. Come up with a good plan on how to save money and figure out how long you're going to be doing it to make the amount of money you want to and then get out. Be realistic about what you're getting yourself into. You don't get to pick and choose who you're going to have sex with. And even if you were able to be able to pick, the choices are not going to be great. The men who see prostitutes are generally men who aren't young or attractive or nice. It's not likely to be romantic or seductive. It's basically a manual labor job. I can only speak from my limited experience. If I were you, I would talk with a sex worker to see what it's really like. If you're going to be doing it for a number of years, make sure it's really going to be worth it. The next quote. I have an old friend who also has BPD and has been involved in sex work for many years now. She started off as a sugar baby and made decent money. More than working a minimum wage job, but nothing amazing. But their relationship became entirely inappropriate due to the BPD and they cut ties. From there, she moved on to work as an escort and had some very negative experiences. This can be dangerous work and I think you should do your research if this is something you're seriously considering at all. It was not at all what my friend was expecting, and it was extremely, extremely mentally and emotionally exhausting at times. Nowadays, she's working as a cam girl. She's been working hard for years and getting better in terms of her BPD, and she's in a much better place than when she started working as a sugar baby. She's for the most part content with the work she does, but she's not at all financially secure. There are times when she's doing great and times where she barely manages to get by. We're only in our 20s recently. She has begun considering going back to school so that she could seek an office job and have a steady income. I definitely think you should do some thorough research to make sure you have a legitimate business plan and fully understand what you're getting into. I hope you found those quotes to be helpful. I really like looking through Reddit, and it's been a while since I've done that, but hearing in people's own words that struggle with things similar that we do, rather than just my words, is something I like to try to incorporate, especially into episodes like this. So, the last piece of research that I found here is piece titled Treating BPD to Create Holistic Healing of Sexual Masochism. So I'm going to read out what the research says here, this article that I had found. People with BPD, like everyone else, can experience sexual masochism in a way that's normal, benign, and even healthy. However, for many, it's anything but. In fact, it is a symptom and perpetuates deep emotional distress in response to traumatic experiences. Not only does this keep you trapped in an ongoing state of dysfunction, it can also put you at risk for new psychological traumas and even physical injury. Furthermore, it prevents you from being able to discover and experience authentic sexual desires and pleasures beyond the limits of your disorder. It keeps you hidden from your true self. Seeking help in the form of trauma-informed therapy 
allows you to begin the process of finding meaningful relief from the overwhelming emotions that define your BPD. By combining dialectical behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and psychodynamic therapy with trauma-focused therapies like somatic experiencing and EMDR, you can come to understand the roots of BPD and gain the skills to cope with distress in positive, healthy ways. In processing your experiences of trauma and sexuality in a validating and safe context, you can discover the true relationship between your BPD and sexual masochism. What you uncover may be difficult and even painful, but with the guidance of expert clinicians and resources, you can move towards more positive expressions of sexuality, improved interpersonal relationships, and restored inner harmony. Interest in sexual masochism is nothing to be ashamed of. The ways human beings experience sexuality are vast, complex, and endlessly varied. But if you're struggling with BPD and masochism, it is essential to recognize that your sexual proclivities may be a symptom of your disorder and could be perpetuating your pain. With the right treatment, you can separate symptomology from your true desires and connect with your authentic self to create a more tranquil, joyful, and pleasurable future. So I want to tie this up here. That's, that's what the research is saying, right? My take on all of that is, and to how to sum all of this up is, you know within your heart if the ways that you are approaching sex and intimacy is something that is helping you heal or preventing you from healing. There is nothing wrong with taking a break from sex and intimacy, just the sexual part of intimacy, for example, to be able to take those small bites, as Dr. Solomon said in the episode from this past week. Figure out what it feels like to just hold hands with someone, maybe just kissing, even if maybe you're not even ready for that yet. There's nothing wrong with taking it all the way back and starting at square one, because it's likely that many of us completely skipped all of that. And those are really, really important things to get comfortable with first. Maybe you never got the chance to get comfortable with those small bites. So start small. Don't be afraid to scale back and take it all back to basics. For so many years of my life, I had no idea that my unsolved, unresolved trauma had led to the use of sex as an unhealthy coping mechanism. And I know that it ended up adding to my low self-esteem, low self-work, and it increased those already deep-seated feelings of shame. And it wasn't until recent years that I began to understand that I, there was nothing to be ashamed of. As I've been working through these healing processes with the guidance of a therapist, through all of the books and research that I recommend to you in every episode, I've started to see that how I chose to cope was the only way I knew how at the time. I didn't know any better. And the shameful thoughts and urges and activities that I was engaging in were a way to deal with the extreme emotional pain and trauma and not having a definition of who I truly was. And so I hope that by sharing everything I've shared with you today, the words of others, my own stories, and you can realize that you're not crazy, that there is nothing to be ashamed of, and understand that. You don't have to deal with the struggles of hypersexuality, sexual dissociation, sex work, all of these things alone. You don't have to deal with it alone. You're not alone. 
and there's nothing wrong with you. It's important that we talk about these things. We can better understand ourselves, better understand others, be less judgmental of others. And I hope that this has given you hope. I hope that this has helped you alleviate shame. The more knowledge we have of ourselves, our coping mechanisms, our defense mechanisms, the way we numb out, the ways that we may seek validation and attention. Remember, it's normal to seek attention and validation. We all need it. It's just that we sometimes seek it in unhealthy ways that actually end up re-traumatizing ourselves. I didn't realize until much later in my life that the ways that I was engaging in sex and intimacy was actually just doing exactly what the research says that we talked about today, re-traumatization, re-traumatizing myself through the ways that I interacted with men and engaged in intimacy. Sex, just like anything else, you can have a perfectly healthy relationship with things like alcohol, even with drugs. Some people take psychedelic drugs, MDMA, once a year and have a great time with it. Some people smoke weed occasionally at a party and really enjoy the calming effects. Some people have an occasional glass of wine with their dinner and they appreciate wine because they love the way that it's made. My dad is a big fan of craft beer. He loves making it. We can't put, and sex, sex is great. You can even have casual sex as a healthy person and really enjoy it and be fully embodied and seek out your pleasure. But then we can also use all of these things as a coping mechanism and alcohol, drugs, sex, all of these things can be just as damaging in their shadow aspect as they can be healing and completely benign or, and benign is another word for just harmless. It's the way that you use it. So we can't put all of these things in a good or bad box. Life would be so much easier if we could do that. But you have to take what I've shared with you here today and decide what it means in the context of your life, your story, your specific trauma. That's where the work begins. How does this research, how does what I've shared with you fit into your life story? Only you know in your heart of hearts, in your gut, is your relationship sex with sex and the way that you are interacting with others, engaging in intimate acts, contributing to your healing or not? And then make decisions and maybe ways that you're going to change the way you act and engage accordingly. So with that, that's all we've got for today. This was a one of many very long bonus episodes. I plan on sharing maybe the first 30 minutes of this episode on my public feed. All of you, my beautiful subscribers, you're going to start seeing me do that a little bit because I want to grow my subscriber base. And what better way to tease people with a little bit of these episodes? And so just know that you may see on the public feed half of a bonus episode or 20 minutes of a bonus episode for my subscriber-only content. And it's going to fade out and it's going to encourage people to subscribe. So I'm going to be doing that. Also, know that I have just launched the ability for you to send me voicemails. And so you will be able to have your voice heard on the podcast. If you go to backfromtheborderline.com slash voicemail, you will be able to record me a voicemail. I think the limit is 90 seconds. I've already got a couple through because I posted about it on Instagram last night. And you can ask me a question and questions sent from my subscribers 
are going to be prioritized. So all I ask is that if you send me a voicemail through this link, that you please state in the voicemail, say, hi, Molly, I'm a premium subscriber. And let let me know that you're a subscriber, basically, because then I can make sure that I prioritize your your question. So how I ask that you say your name, your age, where you're calling from, and whether you're a premium subscriber. So for example, if I'm calling myself, this is how you would do it. Hi, Molly. I My name is Molly. I'm a premium subscriber. I'm based in California, and I'm 32 years old. My question is, blah, 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 blah. You can also share on the podcast just love and how the podcast has changed your life. So you may say, hey, Molly, my name's Mary. I'm 25. I live in Colorado and I'm a premium subscriber. And I just wanted to share the podcast has changed my life because X, Y, Z. And I'll play it on the air. So, and then once people start submitting questions, I'm even going to allow for y'all to submit just a response to another person's question. So that might sound like, Hey, Molly, my name's Joe. I'm from Wyoming and I'm 42. I'm a premium subscriber. I'm actually just calling in to respond to Sarah's question from last week. This has actually helped me. Blah, 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 blah. And you can even give advice to other listeners. So I think this is an incredible way for my listeners to engage in the podcast. And I want to give you, my premium subscribers, the added benefit of having your questions prioritized. So go ahead, go to backfromtheborderline.com slash voicemail or go to my Instagram, which is back from the borderline, and then click in my highlight on Instagram. There's a highlight called Call Me. You can go there. The link is there too. Send me a voicemail. I'd love to answer your question live on air. I would well it's not live, but you get the point. On an episode and you can hear me really respond to your voice and your question. And because you are a premium subscriber, you get first dibs. So I'm really excited about this. I'm want to let you know that my subscriber base is growing so fast. I'm so grateful. I can't believe that I launched this just a week ago and there are already like over 50 of you. It's nuts. And I really hope that this continues growing steadily. I can't tell you what it means to me. And I can't wait to continue to grow this together to add more value and more content to these bonus episodes. So as I said, be prepared that I'm going to probably play about 20 minutes of this bonus episode on my main feed to entice listeners to come and subscribe, but only y'all get the full episode here, which I think is over like an hour and a half this time. So enjoy. I love you all. If you have any feedback, email me. I'd love to hear what you think about this episode. I love to hear from you, my subscribers. I love to hear your thoughts. So feel free to reach out to me from backfromtheborderline at gmail.com. I won't always respond in like long paragraphs. I get so many messages every day now. It's wild on email, YouTube, Instagram, everywhere. But I do try to respond in some type of meaningful way. You may not get paragraphs back from me, but hearing from you and getting that feedback, even if I'm not responding with paragraphs, it informs what I do. So just know that I read every single thing. It helps me. It helps me get to know you, my subscribers, better, and it will help form this experience into something more custom and positive for you. So with that, I'll let you all go. I love you so much. Have the most amazing week and I will chat to you next time. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.